Tony, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. How's yourself? Yeah, really, really well. I'm so pleased yeah, it was a draw last night because it oh, made you right, in a yes. relatively good mood. Yes, yes, yeah. It wasn't a great, great performance or game to be quite honest with you, but you know, you, you'll take another game unbeaten to be quite honest with you. To be fair, you, if you win the home games and do all right yes. in the away games, and there are three Absolutely. teams worse than you. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's right. Yes. Well, you try. Listen, that's the sensible thing. You try and then tell that to a bit of fan. They won't accept that. <laughs> no. Well, this is difficult because I'm I'm Watford, as you know, and yes, uh, yes. we are now on our fourth manager in a year, and it's oh, interesting wow. that because I just I took Graham's book out of the library, yes, and he yeah. said that in '87, Watford fans had grown accustomed to success, and there mm-hmm. was the FA Cup semi-final mm-hmm. against Spurs. Mm-hmm. And there yeah. wasn't the same demand for tickets as there had been for the final in '84, wow. and that was wow. evidence of just kind of the yeah, we're the worst. yeah, yeah. yeah but Villa, yeah. five years ago, you were useless. Absolutely, it's it's thing though. When you get I mean, look at Wolves fans as well. Wolves were you know up until the last five years ago as well, exactly the same. And all of a sudden, you have two, three the season, and the demands, expect expectations, unbelievable. I mean, I was talking about like with the managers. I mean, uh, Rob Edge is a good friend of mine as well, because I worked with him for Wolves for five years as well, and chatting to him about there. And it's like, you know, it's just crazy the the system down out there, isn't it? It's absolutely crazy. How the Italian man, Italian uh, hierarchy work, hierarchy work up yeah. there, isn't it? Really? Oh, it's, it's nonsense. Yeah. And uh, well, there's so many things I'd love to ask Rob Edwards because yes. the the promo was such, and he was supposed to be a new broom. Yeah. And he was supposed to pick his own players, but he lost yeah. Dennis. Yeah. Who actually, yeah. you saw absolutely. Dennis last night? How was yes, he? Yes, I did. He did. He, look, you can see he's a good player. Uh, fits and starts. Get me. I think he's a kind of player. If you put him in a, a more successful team, had a lot more possession, he'd be very, very dangerous. You know, works the line really well. Very skillful. But he, he found himself. He was quite isolated yesterday. I thought, and yeah, when you know when he played. To be quite honest with you, mm. again, no, no fault, no fault of his own. Well, I do. I think he's a decent player, to be fair. Yeah, if you play international football and you're in the Premier League, you are a decent player. You can't yes, just go absolutely. bad overnight. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I saw Andre Gray for a couple of years and there was a confidence player. There was a player who needed a goal and he didn't get it and he's oh, now absolutely. in Greece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we are talking with Tony Daly, The Daily Record, My Football Life, written with Steve Goodyear. Uh, it's a £15 paperback. There are two forwards... Uh, one by an England international, uh, another with a guy who managed England internationals. So who is more important in your life, Steve Bull or Big Ron Atkinson? <laughs> uh, for, for me, I would say I mean, I'm a really good friend with Steve Bull, having uh, worked with him uh, at uh, Wolves as a player, you know, playing with him for four years. A great guy. That's one of the reasons I wanted, wanted to do, do a forward uh, for me as well, because he, he kind of knows me inside out as well. But it really has to be Big Ron for me. Um, you know, um, he, he's such a, a great, charismatic manager, uh, one I really, really enjoyed working under, you know, and to be fair, um, played uh, in, he was the manager who got us and got me and earned uh, league winning medal out of nothing in terms of that now no one expects us to win a game against Man United, so it'd have to be a big one for me. Fantastic. And uh, I've read, I think he's written two memoirs and Ron is a very fascinating character because he was very, very good at his job. Was he a tactician or a kick you up the arse manager? Man management skills was right. a big one uh, for sure. Uh, tactically, it, it, it wasn't in a sense, it did. He'd have people around him, coaches to do that. But, you know, he can get the best out of his players. His man management skills are superb. I mean, if you look at that time uh, when Villa were going, had some uh, massive names there and massive egos to record to you in a big way. You know, you've got, you've got Dean Saunders, Dale Axon, uh, God rest his soul, uh, Andy Townsend, Steve Staunton, Ray Houghton, you know, some, some big, big, big uh, characters there as well. And he couldn't keep all those happy. We had the ability, you know, to keep a squad that were, you know, were, were tight, were a tight unit, keeping all those players happy. I mean, the same thing, you look at the likes of, you know, Pep and Klopp as well, having the same problems with such big, you know, uh, big characters in their team as well. He had that ability to man-manage people um, and get the, get the best out of the players for sure. It's an incredibly sad fact that the Villa 92-3 team, uh, and this was before my time, unfortunately, <laughs> Ugo Ahiog, Cyril Regis, Dalian Atkinson, who have all passed away, 
Um, I know Cyril Regis was a born again Christian yeah, as, as well. So, do you think of him as often as you think of Ugo or Dalian? Big C, I have so much respect for him. I mean, uh, growing up as a player, uh, as, a, as a youngster, what he had to go through, you know, uh, characterised, um, gave a blueprint for uh, players such as myself, uh, 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 black players, to come and play in this league as well. He had to endure what he went through as well. You know, he's an absolute idol to me. And it was quite funny because, you know, at the time, I was an established player at Aston Villa at the time, and Big C came to the club as, you know, latter part of his career with Villa under Big Run. And I was in, I was probably like a, a puppy dog in terms of anxiety in Northern. <laughs> yeah, so it's it really, really quite funny actually as well when you, when, when you actually talk about players as well. Yeah, for me as well. So, I mean, you've, you've named those players all there, all, all really good friends of mine. Absolutely gutted, you know, in terms of uh, their passing and just puts things in perspective about your life and, uh, and how we go on and everything else. And, you know, as I said, they were, they were, they were great guys and I, I truly do miss them and a day doesn't go by when I really don't think of all three of those. Yeah, and Dalian was, well, we know the goal, but yeah. would he do that kind of thing in training? Was he a good trainer? Dalian, I would say to God bless his socks. I'm saying nothing against him. Was not the best trainer at all. Yes, he was. He, he was. He had, he had a gift on his day. I'm surprised he never picked him an England cap because he was unplayable. You know, the, the goal you, you, you scored. You played the goal towards Wimbledon. One who scored that the goal of the season. He could do that in training. Absolutely not a problem. You know, beat two, three players, pick the ball up and smack it in the top corner. Not a problem. What Dalian had the ability, he was quick, strong as an ox. Very similar, I would say, in, in, in the Cyril Regis mode in terms of that now. You can take players on, uh, you know, uh, one of the defenders. But, you know, with D as well, you know, he, he had other things going in his life in terms of being, uh, being, being, a, being a footballer. And we just didn't see, for me, enough of the, the, the true Dalian. I mean, a Villa fan saw, uh, you know, quite a bit of it. But, you know, if he was unsung and and perhaps dedicated himself more to football. I've had this conversation with Dalian as well, so it's nothing I'm not saying, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, that we should know the dead, because I think, you know, he was a very good friend of mine, and a fantastic character, and we had this conversation many a time about it, that he, he could, have, could have gone and played for England, not a problem. Because it's all, well, obviously, you speak as a pro-fitness chappy. You've got mm-hmm. uh, 7D, 7 Daily. Yeah. Uh, and you're a fitness consultant now, having, having and we'll, we'll get to that. But so much of it is luck, circumstance, and mental. So you, having been born, by the way, this goes out the day after your fifth birthday. This goes out on the nineteenth. So yeah. I hope you get lots of birthday wishes <laughs> next week. Do you feel Thank the you. age you obviously you exercise every day? Do you feel fifteenth birth? Absolutely not. You know, I mean, sometimes tell me just remember your age. Don't get me wrong. You, you know, I wake up in the morning. I have certain aches and pains. That's just through my injury, my, my knee injury. But in terms of you know uh, doing the, doing the job I do, no hindrance whatsoever. I'm, I feel fit, healthy. You know, I'm doing a job that I absolutely love. You know, a job that enables me to to, to be in the gym at least six six days a week mm. and being able to work out and everything else. It's not a chore to me. Trust me, if you, you know, it's something I absolutely adored from a, a young age. And, you know, coming up to my 55th birthday, nothing, nothing's changed in the way I feel, my, my outlook on life and everything else. Yes. Well, something did change in March 2020 because one of the things that was mentioned when the pandemic happened, as well as the loss of jobs, the loss of the gym. So were you envious of Joe Wicks becoming the human face of exercise? And not at all. I thought it's it's it was a great tour because mental health was such a big th- a thing there as well. Uh, people being at home, uh, spending time with loved ones, but they don't need, normally spend that length of time with them as well. It was a true character of, of those as well. You know, uh, children not being able to go to school, uh, people, um, you know, fearful of the jobs, people having jobs but not being able to do them work or just working from home. It was a completely different thing where people, you could have had a nation if it wasn't for the likes of people like Joe Wicks bringing um, the, to the masses, people never exercised before, suddenly joining in. You know, I, I had... I did something of similar ilk of similar ilk but obviously on a much lower scale where I produced you know programs and things for people free of charge 
you know, can come onto my Instagram and have a look at it and, and help helped as much as I can that way as well because I knew the importance of what exercise does to mental health as well. So yes. for him to go out and actually uh, do that and use, his, use his, uh, his fame and notoriety in the way he did was awesome. They're fab. There's the couch to 5K, there's spin yep. classes, but both those things, I was just thinking, feel cultish. It feels like because you throw yourself into something, you go to spin class and you've got your teacher or you do uh, the park run and you have balloons for people who have done 50 or 100 runs. Are you aware that exercising can be kind of us and them, the people who exercise and the people who don't? Not look. I, I quickly put it this way. I mean, we, we, we talk about if you, if you talk about exercise as well, and, and people go when they see somebody in the gym and they've never exercised before, and all of a sudden six months down the line, they can say, "Oh, they're obsessed with it. Look at that. They're, they're, they're doing this, doing that." But they're being better for themselves, aren't they? I could think of being, you know, obsessed about other things as well. They're not good for you as well. Eating too much, not exercising, you know, sitting on the couch all the time. Uh, uh, drinking, taking drugs, you know what I mean? All, 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 all course and So if you're going to have something like that and, you, you know, it, it, us and them culture, I think it's people who are not so much envious, who who don't exercise and see someone else in, who's exercised and have the benefits of it. Suddenly they're criticised for that. I, I just, it doesn't make sense to me. Someone's, you know, uh, looking after their well-being, getting better. Is it is it obsessive? Is it us uh, with them? I totally disagree with that. You are perfectly entitled to. And you, uh, are you soliciting new uh, people to train or have you are you fully booked? Because you are, after all, Tony mm-hmm. Daly, seven caps for England, 260 Aston Villa appearances. Yeah, look, as, as I said, you know, um, of course, um, in terms of there, there is a waiting list uh, for myself as well. But of course, you know, um, I do it every uh, month or so where I do get new clients in and um, uh, try and fit as many clients as, as I do as well, to be fair, because, it's, again, it's something I'm, I really enjoy and really enjoy doing because I'm not only trained um, the, the elite players, you know, I have some Premier League players as well as um, academy players as well. But also, I'd, I'll train Joe Blocks down the road as well in terms of that now. And you know, I get as much enjoyment seeing um, those people, whether they whether they lost a stone or they just feel better about themselves, happy about themselves. I get as much pleasure as I do, you know, uh, training um, the so-called elite football or elite athletes. So, you, you know, for me. Um, my door's always welcome for, for anybody to come in and, and visit me and you know and I'm quite happy to get those in as quickly as and as uh, you know efficiently as I can absolutely which makes me think that you must have written this book with Steve Goodyear the daily record my football mm-hmm. life at midnight because that's probably the only time you have that you aren't <laughs> being a family man or yeah. training elite footballers or listening to their problems perhaps so how many sessions did you have with Steve for the book. Oh, look! It took. It was three years in the making. This was. I mean, bear in mind, uh, Johnny, that it was. This was going to be over the period where we had the COVID and the lockdown. I thought, you know, this is a good time to dig into the book, but it never worked that way because of of my work purposes. What happened was, where all of a sudden, you know, um, you, you you've got you've got a great business, and suddenly, bang! No one can go to the gym. Nobody can get out. I had to do different ways to try and, you know, um, accommodate people in the gym. And that was, we're talking about online programs and setting that up. So I didn't have much time really to get the, the book involved. But what I did as well, yes, my, my, my hours, I'm, I'm one of those people who really go to bed fairly late, you know, anywhere between 11 and 12 o'clock and, I, and I'm up by 4.30 in the morning. So for me, I have plenty of hours in the day to get, you know, to plan and get things done and, you know, do stuff bits and pieces as well, as well as getting that balance right. So you're talking about family, which is very, very important, and loved ones, that's very important. But, you know, I don't always get it right, but I do try to get that balance between work and family and pleasure. And also um, being uh, a representative of Graham Taylor on Earth. We'll get to GT uh-huh. imminently. Yeah. I've got the most killer question that I'm okay. really proud of, so I'll ask that. But I just wanted oh, yeah. to talk about this Hampshire Lions event, which yes. uh, includes a book uh, for Turning Up, and this is on November the 18th, which is very uh-huh. close to the start of the World Cup. Do you envisage uh-huh. that you'll be watching uh, the England team and the rest of the tournament? 
Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll be watching uh, that for sure. An England team that was struggling at this present moment now. But it's all about peaking for the games and everything else. You know, I've, I've, I've seen, you know, French teams are struggling. Kind of, Italian teams have gone and won the World Cup who didn't have particularly good, you know, good run-ins and uh, uh, good games prior. But, you know, it's going to be difficult for England as it is uh, uh, with this there as well. But I will be enjoying the England games for sure. Very, very patriotic. I mean, playing for my country is a magnificent honour for me to do. And I'll be, you know, avidly hoping that, that we can go on and, you know, get as far as we can in the competition. Yeah, quarterfinals, I think, will be good. Where do you keep the caps that you got? Yeah, so at, at the moment, they're um, uh, away in uh, uh, the loft at this present moment as well. They're kept securely as well. But, you know, I'm in the process of doing bits and pieces and moving as well. And once that is and once I'm established, then they'll be somewhere in the, in the house for sure. Fair. Because when you play for England, you did seven times, mostly away from home, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You only played once in England, and that was quite a big game. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. probably the biggest game you could yeah. have. Mm-hmm. For England. Uh, but before the 1990 World Cup, and you, you knew players, David Platt notably, who oh, was your teammate yes. at Villa. There were other Villa players in that squad, weren't there? Um, I think, no, I, think so. I mean, I've been mean, squads where Gordon Cairns was in, but yeah. I think that was under Brian Robson. But in that squad, I think, well, I think it was only uh, David mm. Platt at the time. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. only Platt. And of course, Steve yeah. Bull. Yes, there was Steve Ball, but he was with the oh yes, team rates, of course. Yes, mm-hmm. again, Steve Ball would have been with the 1990. Again, um, I was in a couple of squads with Steve Ball there for sure. Yes. yes. So you were under. You played under Graham Taylor. Who knew yeah. that when Graham Taylor was England manager, he'd pick you, Tony Daly, uh, for England. That you were kind of the Paddy Kenny uh, to yes, Neil Warner. Warner yeah. Actually, there's a book to be written. About mm. teachers' pets, about yes, yes, yeah. the Nico Cranchar. I don't know if you've met Nico Cranchar and Domain oh, Defoe yeah, and Crouchy. Yeah. I'm sure Gerard's got some as yes, well. Ryan yeah. Kent, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but yes, you started at Villa mm-hmm. and you made your first team debut in 1985, played for nine seasons. And it was, I didn't realise this, you actually got relegated, bottom oh, yes. of the first division, 86 87. Oh, yes, yes. Mm. When Graham Taylor came in, Afterwards, he said Villa was in complete disarray with a crumbling stadium and tiles missing from the dressing room. Was that what the playing staff felt like as well? Obviously, getting relegated is no fun, but there could be other yeah. reasons for it. But what was the issue? The issue was that uh, comfort zones. There were more senior players there. Um, bear in mind, I'm saying senior players. I was a youngster at that particular time, um, looking from the outside in, and we're watching. There was no discipline whatsoever. There was a drinking culture at that time as well, there as well. But wasn't it all in that? It wasn't just at Villa, other clubs included. There was a lack of discipline. And I think as well, a, a, a feeling that Aston Villa and we weren't going to go down. I think there was too many uh, characters in that dressing room who didn't really, weren't really bothered because if they Villa went down, I would, I'll go and get a new club anyhow. That was the kind of mentality at that time. I think... Uh, that that was the issue. So I think Graham Taylor was was spot on for me at that age, Johnny as well. All I wanted to play football. I was a Villa fan. Wanted to play football f- uh, for my beloved Villa at that particular time. And you know, it was only really at the time you you didn't see it until you were a little bit older, a little bit wiser, and you could actually see what was going on. Had you played in the Youth Cup? I, I wrote this book about the Youth Cup, and Mark mm-hmm. Walters is yes. mentioned, who may well have moved on by the time you yes. were you may have taken mm-hmm. his place. But he was a huge fan of what Brian Little had done. Yeah. So mm-hmm. all the work that Brian had done had been undone by the time you came into the first team and, and this and Villa had to play in the second tier. Villa Park would only get 10,000 people, so yeah. you were playing in an echoey stadium. So it, it didn't feel like fun. Or was it yeah. great for you because you had oh, you could only go upwards? <laughs> listen, again, there was no selfishness or thinking, oh, I can only go one way, it's great. It for me, but I was Villa fan since nine years of age. Used to go down there and watch, and, and watch them as many times at home, sneaking, sneaking on the turnstiles to go and watch them uh, with my brother. Um, uh, you, you know, it was a dream come true for me to play for Aston Villa. Whether it was 30,000 people there or, or 100 people there, it made no difference to me. Playing for my home club, so it, was, it, it didn't make a difference or a jot of difference to me at that particular time. And I think it was a time when Villa were going through a transition, as I said, as well. I think football was as well. 
there's a lot of hooliganism, hooliganism going along that particular time as well. Crowds in general weren't great going to football uh, football grounds as well. Um, so I, th- I think it was not up until coming into the Premier League when things started to improve in terms of the fan base and everything else, and when actually we saw you know the bigger crowds coming on uh, for me. That was that was then. Yeah, it's a good thing racism has been kicked out of football. Has it? Nope. <laughs> nope. Yes, and it please. never will because yes, there will sir. always be people who are resistant to change. Yeah, and, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you were in England squads with other black players, and uh, I'm sure you've you've talked about this in the book because it's a it's an issue that dogged football in the the first division era. It just uh-huh. it was ignorance, and it was just a place where you could be anonymous. But at the same time, you would be treated as a hero in Birmingham. People would come up to you and say, hey, good performance, Tony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the the irony if you just said there as well. You know, I mean, and I'll say to you, in my own experiences, uh, in my own friends, I've never experienced any any racism from uh, players I've played with in my own team and also, you know, with the fans there as well. But, boy, you know, going going to away grounds as well and some of the experiences I had, was unbelievable, you know the, the the kind of thing it was. But as you said, it was accepted, you know, kind of thing. It was accepted by me as a player. It kind of was, if that makes sense, you know. But what I used to do when you get the N word called at you and you get the monkey chance, you know, when you when you got ten thousand Leeds fans from one stand uh, doing monkey chance and yeah, sh- screaming out the N word and everything else, and we go there and we beat them three nil, and you know, when you do it with, with your feet as well, it only inspired me to play football to play better, to go out and prove to these ignorant people that, you know, football's football, you know, there's got nothing, colour has no credence, has nothing to do with this at all. And I did that with my feet, you know, that's at that time. I mean, granted, things would be different now if this happened as well because it, it's, it's intolerable and just it wouldn't be bearable in terms of that now and things would be done a different way, whether we're walking off, off the field and or whatever, and there'd be bans. But at that time, nothing was done. The only way you could actually do the stand up was to stand tall, don't react to it, and you know do the magic with you. You answered the critics. You answered the, the the. I don't know what to call them actually because I don't want to swear. No, the game, game, yes, game. Yes, yes. It, it yeah. is. It is amazing that Raheem Sterling now plays for Chelsea. Mm-hmm. So there are fans of Chelsea who will be watching on their little screen somewhere, having abused him in the past. Marchers, yeah, Liverpool fans abused him before for moving mm-hmm. to Man City. Uh, but Raheem seems to be oh. the Tony Daly of the current England squad. And, isn't, and the irony, as I said before, it's amazing. Being in stadiums where, you know, Leeds, for instance, or during my time there, and you're getting monkey chants shouted and everything else, and and uh, actually Leeds fans abusing their own black players or whatever, or teams black players, or in sometimes, sometimes they don't, they'll do a monkey chant or whatever, and they would go, oh, we're not doing that to you so-and-so because you're one of us. Yeah, you're, you're, okay. you're, you're, you're a, a good one. You're okay, yeah, yeah, oh. kind of thing. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, as I said, it, it's just ridiculous, really. And mm. it's now this, you know, you talk about 21st century it, it, it's not so much the overt racism you know it's it's a it, it's a it's a covert version of it that's the difficult part of it now really right there it was completely open it was there and there to see i think it's gone a little bit underground now in terms of that now i have a dream that one day uh-huh. uh watford can win the uh first of it we're not going to win watford uh-huh. are far too far behind but i think kicking racism out of football is a a more easily convertible dream uh than watford winning uh-huh. The Premier League because it just won't happen. Um, to go back to your time at Villa, what was it like getting kicked by Martin Keown week after week after week <laughs> after week after week? Martin Keown, what a great guy! You know what? There's two sides of Martin. I mentioned the book as well. That one, the, the side you see off the field, an absolute gentleman, softly spoken, very intelligent guy, which you can see now he's converted to you know being on the TV in terms of stuff he does uh, as a presenter, but then. As a football side, he'd kick his own granny, in all fairness, you know, he's, he, with that as well. But if you get to know Martin, he's a great guy as well. Even even then, I remember the time when, you know, I, I'm, 
wasn't and still wasn't the best head of the ball, but he'd spent time with me, you know, in terms of, look, you know, we don't expect you to score goals, you know, from a corner, flying in the far post, being a centre-half. But things like, you know, the ball's played over to you and you could get little flicks on against a full-back and stuff like that because I had a pretty decent leap with me, but I could never head the ball. But, you know, I'd spend many afternoons with him as well I'd cross the ball for him to do some defensive headers and he'd do the same for me just in terms of putting situations to get my timing right in my headers as well. Yeah. So Mark Keown's a great guy. In saying all that, Johnny, as well, yes, in training, I was absolutely kicked to death in, on the training field. Which is but good. Part, yeah, which part passed of it, you know. You pick you up, you carry on again, you know. It was never, that, that was it. It was... You know, you, you trained how you, how you played. You know, in terms of that, it wouldn't be things where you tried to break your leg or anything, but the ball's going to be there to be won, you know. Or if you took the mickey out of him too many times, he'd, he'd let you know about it in terms of that now. But that's part, part of, of being a footballer at that time. I had no issues with it at all. Good. And that time was that twilight period between the Heysel disaster and the first game of the Premier League in which Aston Villa went back up in 1988 on goals scored. You and uh, Borough had the same results. Borough went up in the playoffs, so it was academic. But do you think you still would have gone up had you conceded one more goal and not gone up automatically? Yeah, we even thought that game that, um, you know, we had to, we thought we had to win that game to get anything out of it. So even when we drew that game as well, we didn't know what the result was going to be in terms of that. Now we thought we'd blown it. And in the final whistle, we remember seeing the fans going ballistic and go, you know, communication wasn't great at that time in terms of, you know, yeah, it's as well. I and mean, it was confirmed that we'd actually um, draw, the draw was good enough for us to go up. It was an amazing feeling. It was unbelievable back in there. So, you know, thoughts of any other permutations went through the window in terms of that now, that the fact we're up, we're up and that, that, that's history says that now. And whom should Villa replace in the Premier League? Watford. Watford. <laughs> How very interesting. And you, yeah, you went yeah. on to play for Watford, which we will that's get right, to. Yeah. Villa stayed up on the last day of the 88-89 season, mm-hmm. which was yeah. rather um, ruined that season because... Um, there was a game at Villa Park on the April 15th and there was a game at Hillsborough. So what were you doing on the afternoon of the Hillsborough disaster? Yeah, do you know what? I was actually watching the game on uh, that semi-final on TV. Mm. I was actually there, so whether I was injured or whatever, I actually remember watching it uh, live as it happened and been thinking, what the hell is going on here? You know, in terms of that now with the fans. Of course, like anything else, uh, during that time... You know, with the violence and everything else, the initial thought is, oh, here we go, crowd trouble straight away. But you soon realise that, materialise that it was something a lot worse than that when you saw the ambulances coming in and, you know, you could see the faces in the stands of uh, fans desperate to get out and calling for help and stuff like that. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was an, an awful thing. So I remember watching it on TV as it unfolded. And what happened as a professional? Did you get any form of counselling or did any Villa players get counselling because this could have happened anywhere? Mm, yeah, No, I could also say that I don't recall getting any counselling as well but, you know, I would say to you something that we discussed as players and, and talking about it and, and disaster and everything else. I think it's, uh, it would have been a little bit different if we were actually the two teams involved in that on that day if it was complete, if that was the case, you know, but I think as well, like the whole the whole nation, we were, we were shocked about it and it was something that we, as, a, as a squad, as a team, uh, we actually talked about it with the manager as well, we actually talked about it and discussed and, you know, and and I think, you, you know, being part of it and having discussed about it as well, you can kind of not move forward, but you can actually, you know, if there's any problems with that as well, then you could have actually spoken to anybody there as well, but in terms of uh, counselling, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. No, because it it seemed to impact the whole country and then the the, the lies and the untruths and the inquiry that went on. Uh, And meanwhile, um, Paul McGrath had signed for Aston Villa. Uh Now, um, rather than tell people how amazing Paul McGrath was, because this is well known, he played on one leg and was the best player of the season for Villa. But you had your injuries, McGrath had his injuries. Would today's doctors have meant that your career and Paul's career would have been less interrupted by all the injuries. So how far has science come in the 30 years since you played? Sports science has gone leaps and bounds for sure. You know, I I, I do do feel, you know, that uh, having injuries I had, it's more the the, the rehab side of it in terms of the injuries and injury prevention. 
would most definitely be enable me to, um, you, you know, uh, yeah, the red zone, keep out the yes, red zone, absolutely uh, prolong my career, absolutely. Not just that as well. I mean, in terms of um, the exercise that you can do, the prehab exercises, you know, the, the training, the actual training session, not, not only the intensity of training sessions, which you're quite right as well, but did, you know, it quite equally as well, Johnny. You can get injured by not training hard enough. So it's not just about keeping people at the red zones. Some people um, don't train hard enough, get injured. How many times do you see a player who hasn't? Who's just come back into the team? He's been out for two, three weeks, four weeks because he hasn't been he hasn't been playing the regular base, not been injured. All of a sudden, he's been thrown into a game because of an injury, and you know, you know, he last four to five minutes or, or or one game goes play the next game and picks up a soft muscle injury. Um, that was regular, that would have been a regular thing if it wasn't for the interest in sports science and the, the ability to go, hang on, this player hasn't played, he needs to be training at this intensity so that when he does play, he won't pick up his injuries because his body's you know, used to that uh, particular type of training. So it works both ways. Conversely, look at the other side as well. Players who, as you said, you know, playing uh, week in, week out, you have to look at their training, adapt their training sessions as well because, you know, they need to monitor them as well with the introduction of GPS. So all, all that's really, really relative and really important. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about McGrath, because Graham Taylor tried to build his England side around Paul Gascoigne, mm-hmm. he had experience with McGrath, who was a very troubled character, Graham desperately tried with Gascoigne and it didn't work. How come it worked with Paul McGrath at Villa? You finished second behind Liverpool in 1990. Yeah, the difference was because one's international and um, where you don't see that particular player week in, week out, just internationals and the other one... Most definitely, you see that player week in, week out. So you you have an you, you, you affinity with that player. You get to understand that player. You man can man manage that player. Plus the fact, uh, you know, um, he had was the, the best staff you can ever imagine uh, at the time. He had uh, Jim Walker, the physio, who was unbelievable uh, with Paul McGrath in terms of uh, man managing him, looking after him, training, and making sure that he was he, he was he was in the right frame of mind to train and play and everything as well regarding as well. So I think he had great staff, and I think as well he was able to manage him because he he, he would see him you know on a regular basis yeah. as well. It just occurs to me that for the seven games you played for England, Poland away, uh, what was the Soviet Union away, Hungary away, Finland away, and then in Euro 92, and then Brazil at home, Gascoigne wouldn't have featured in any of those squads because he did his ligament. Yeah, that's correct. Yes, yes, he was, he was out of those. But I had the, the, the pleasure of um, training with Gascoigne under uh, and, uh, Bobby Robson because I managed to uh, gate-crash the, the, the squads leading up, leading up to the World Cup. Uh, even though I didn't make any appearances as well, you know, I was, I was on the bench a couple of times uh, prior to the 1990 World Cup. I had the pleasure of watching, watching, and to say, watching Paul Gascoigne in training, you know, and uh, the character he was, yeah, immense, yeah. immense, immense talent. Well, for England was full of immense characters, Stuart Pearce, Chris Waddle, whose yes, talent yeah. was extraordinary from what mm-hmm. I hear. Did you learn anything from these England wings? Because they must have been oh, better than you, someone like yes, Waddle. Yes. Oh, listen, I mean, without doubt, I mean, I mean, you talk about Chris Waddle, you know, what a fantastic player he was as well. Remember, you look like Johnny Barnes, one of Johnny Barnes, and being able to be in the same, you know, same squads as these particular players, Carol Lineker people, you, you you know, you do play against, even though you, you end up playing against them for Liverpool and for Tottenham, wherever they were at the time. It was fantastic. You mentioned Stuart Pearce there. You don't realise what a, what a character he is. I mean, many battles with Stuart Pearce, been kicked so many times by Stuart Pearce, playing against him for Forest as well, and many battle with him. But with England, he was one of the first people to you know introduce me into the squad, make sure I was okay, uh, speak to him. He's, a, he's an absolute leader. And what you find with the big characters there as well, because they say something about Gary Lineker, John Barnes, you know, those, those particular people as well, they kind of know the newbies coming to the squad. They were all there. They've seen how the T-shirt and how you feel. You're in awe. You, you know, you're nervous and everything else. And they make you feel welcome and part of the squad. And there's no difference there. You know, they're great characters. So what I did learn is these top, top players, as you said, you know, they're humble, they're good people, them as well, as, as well as fantastic uh, players. Yeah, and some would say you've carried that through right up until 2022. So when you're playing at Wembley against Brazil, is it surreal or do you just treat it like an ordinary game? <laughs> Listen, not being funny. Um, as a footballer, 
as I said to you as well, and I'm not lying to you, the thing I wanted to do was to um, uh, play for Villa, uh, the hometown club, represent my country for England. And if you said, if you, what game would you like be the epitome of all games you want to play for England if you went a bit further? It would be Brazil, England versus Brazil at Wembley. And that happened. And I'll tell you something now, to take the atmosphere, atmosphere in, it was unbelievable. It was fantastic event, you know, a, a massive event, even though it was unfriendly. I mean, you know, I felt as big a game as that was in playing, as playing in the, uh, the League Cup final for uh, Villa in the, against Man United. It was that same kind of feel, if that makes sense, in terms of a game. Who, I'm just looking at the the lineup for that England Brazil game. Was this 1992, May 1992? Mm-hmm. So Chris Woods in goal, who was a very experienced. Uh, goalkeeper Gary Stevens, Tony Dorigo, Carlton Palmer, Des Walker, Martin Keown. Very yes. nice. Yes. That must have been fun for yeah. Ray <laughs> to be kicked <laughs> by Marco. Get this guy, Bebeto, against Martin yes. Keown. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow, yeah. mm. Lineker was captain. Uh, you came off on 72, replaced mm. by Paul Merson. Mm. And uh, Maro Silva also playing for Brazil. But your mate David Platt scored mm. that game. Do you remember yes, much yeah. about that goal? Yeah, I don't remember. I, 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 very, very. Briefly, I know that, but Dave Platty was actually on fire, you know, in an England shirt as well. It's absolutely fantastic. But the, the one thing I do remember, even though uh, Platty, but I do remember Gary Lineker's infamous uh, penalty, wasn't he? He did a Penen- try the Penenka and missed that penalty. That would have equaled the record, I think, of uh, goals on that particular day as well. So he, took a, he missed the penalty that day as well. Did he realise that Penenka, the whole point of the Penenka penalty was that he practised and practised and practised and practised. So would Lineker have practised that in training? Would you see him taking Penenkas? No, I, I hadn't seen. That's why I was surprised about it. For me, you know, he's got the penalty. It's going to equal the thing. I'm just thinking, oh, I score well, well done, Gary, yes. you know, we're going to again. So when he did that, it really, really did surprise me, you know. So, the you know, if, if it comes off, it's a fantastic goal. And if you've seen before, if he doesn't, as he did there, you, you suddenly you, people start to question it as well. So what you do the penalty is just make sure, you know, you know, you put your foot through, basically. It wasn't, I was really surprised when Gary Lineker did, did try that penalty. Mm, and I'm sure the manager was as well. You were playing against Sweden. It was mm-hmm. their Euro. And uh, Lineker was subbed in that game. You also played That's against right. Denmark. So Peter Schmeichel and the Laudrops. And this was the story of, Football in 92, uh, this was the last tournament before the back pass rule came in. So, A, how did football change after the back pass rule? And B, how shocking was it for Denmark, the late entrance to Euro 92? Because you'd prepared for Yugoslavia and then suddenly you had to play Denmark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in, in terms of that now, you, you know, we just took each game. I mean, they would have been prepared for that as well, but also would have done their homework. But going back to the back pass rule, I think it, not so much for players, all right, I think the worst thing for was for goalkeepers. Because goalkeepers at the time as well, you, you know, were used to picking a ball up, taking it from the hands. Suddenly they had to get that ball at their feet. So it's completely different. So we caught out some really good shot stoppers, really one who, who, who were good with their hands and everything else. And then they found out the people who struggled with their feet, the goalkeepers as well. So all of a sudden, I think that was the biggest change for me was for the goalkeepers. And it was shocking because Forrest and Leeds were the ones who suffered, but Villa did fantastically well in that. Uh, season. I, were you playing in the 92-3 season or was that an injury yeah. hit one? Yeah, that was an injury, injury hit one. I managed to uh, have the last three months of the season. I think I played some like 10 or 12 games during the latter part of the season because um, once I uh, finished uh, Euros, I'd, uh, I'd had a crucial injury from there as well. But managed to feel that, that fit a team. So I was, um, I was probably from um, January, February onwards I started to play. Very good. And then... Um... You left Villa in 1994. Oh, I, I forgot to ask. You played in Europe in 1990-91 because if you finish second, is that's that right, UEFA yes. Cup? Yes, that's correct. Yes, played in uh, UEFA Cup. Was that that's fun? Was. Extra travel? Extra oh, games? yes. Yeah, it was fantastic. It, it really was. You know, um, it, was, it was good. A good experience at that particular time as well. Um, I think we we we, we played a, a Danish side. I think it was. I'm not 100 sure, but we, we got knocked out by a Spanish team there as well. So we won our first first round and then lost um, in um, uh, over two legs in uh, Spain. Yeah, so that was a good experience. As I said, it, it was good because playing European football, having experience in football, that was the second time as well because I did it um, 
as well. Uh, Finch runs up in 89-90 as well, so experienced it twice. Yes. Uh, you know, European football. So it was good. It's a good experience, and you, you you can't beat that as well. You know, challenging against you, you know the the better teams in Europe as well is fantastic. Um, who loved Graham Taylor more, you or Luther Blissett? Oh, I, I don't know. All I know is that you know I hold you know I hold him in high esteem. Graham Taylor, you know, uh, what people don't realise is that yes, they could call him, they call him uh, my dad and everything else, and you know, with that as well. But um, I, I can assure you, my first few occasions with Graham Taylor weren't uh, the best, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> you know, we had a few, not saying one ins and stuff as well, um, we had a few uh, issues to say initially as well. Before, before we got to where we were. So he, he met Luther Blissett in his office and went, Luther Blissett, that's the name of a top striker. <laughs> Did he say Tony Daly, that's the name of a right winger? Yeah, you know what? I think as well when he got to Villa, uh, I, I think it was about five days before he even spoke to me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, it was quite interesting because I was away um, on, on the 20s international and he was manager of the England on the 20s. And... Um, which we were we had a tournament tour over Brazil at the time and did extremely well there. Um, I, I did personally did quite well out there as well. And so when I found out that he was going to be uh, Villa manager, I was so excited. The fact he always he knows all about me, seen me play. You know, I did well under him here. It wasn't until four or five days, you know, trying to catch his eye, trying to impress me that you know it, it took his time before he actually uh, spoke to me. But that's more in the book. It's a very interesting story. <laughs> Thank you, good. Just got to sell this book, The Daily Record, My Football Life. £15 in paperback. Is it Morgan Entertainment is the publisher? Um, I did have a look at Graham's book, and he said that, and you, you've probably been quoted this back at you several times, his legs was almost too quick for him sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. too quick? Yeah, I hear what you're saying as well, because, you know, in terms of... The way I played, you know, was, you know, I was quick. I could run really, really quickly, and it was a case of, you know, not only just kicking the ball and running, but I'd run with the ball at pace. And sometimes when you're running there and you get into the byline and everything else, and you want to cross the ball, you still your mind's still going 100 miles an hour. Your legs are going 100 miles an hour, and everything else like that. But you had to try and slow your mind down, you know. So. You know, the thing he said with me was, it's great beating four or five players and crossing it into into uh, the the stand. No good to him, okay? So what you've got to do really is to it work tirelessly, and I mean tirelessly, every afternoon during one pre-season. And this was probably the best uh, season I ever had as a football player. It worked, you know, every afternoon. So he used to say to me, slow trigger, slow yourself down. So he wouldn't say slow me down, slow your mind down. So practice uh, crossing from a right hand side, left hand side, away to one of defenders. About the beauty of don't worry about losing the ball because you know, you know, you you've got an option if you win that defender. He yeah, has only one successful thing he can do. You'll get a free kick from him. You know, he'll tackle, put the ball out of play. You'll get past him, put the ball in there. You get past him, score a goal. The only thing uh, bad that comes to you, he can win the ball. Tackle you and run the field with the ball. That's the only thing. So if he tackles you and get you, you're going to get you. You're going to get some form of possession. So the beauty of being able to, you know, to realise that defenders hate playing against you. He was, you know, he, he had the ability to make you feel a million dollars, yeah. like you were the best player in the world. Well, that's good because you made Elton John feel like a million dollars as well. Did you meet Elton after you moved yes. from Wolves to Watford? Yes, I met him um, uh, uh, one game. I can't remember the game it was after he came in uh, to the dressing room after a game. I had the pleasure of meeting Elton. It was fantastic. Yep, it was good. It was good. I had a chat with him as well, so that was, that was awesome. Was it the game, perhaps, where you played, bearing in mind you're an Aston Villa fan, you oh, played no. against Birmingham City in a 2-1 yes. win, you scored one and assisted the other. Yeah. Hey, that must have been a fantastic... Uh, was, it was, listen, as I said, you know, uh, my, my career at Watford was, was all over the place. You know, just coming back, I was, I was really latter part of my career, struggling with injury, had the opportunity to come there. But, you know, it was it was a case of uh, playing, I played in this game and won the games. A few games I played for Watford at the time. And I was actually on, on it that game as well. So it's fantastic against the, the team. Yeah, I would say that's not my favourite team at all, being you know, being a Aston Villa uh, player and uh, ex-player and, and, a, and a fan. So it was a great feeling 
you know, scoring a goal and a header at that as well, to be fair as well, a header and assist for Tommy Mooney, I think he was as well. Ah, ah yeah, well. so so the header, so um, you would have um, had Martin Keown in mind yeah, as you were heading. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yes. <laughs> the current manager of Wales going to the World Cup, Bob Page. I know very little about his style of management, but can you see a lot of Graham Taylor? Because he was Graham's captain for the Premier League season. Do you see yeah. a lot of GT in him? Yeah, what I see is someone who's, who's very composed under pressure. So uh, Graham Taylor never get phased. He would never get phased, no matter what the situation was. Uh, externally, externally, uh, you know, uh, uh, you didn't know what he was thinking as such as well. He looked very composed under all sorts of pressure. And I saw that with Rob, Rob especially the way he manages Wells, the way he talks about, uh, you know, his players and his teams. You, you do get murmurs of, of Graham Taylor there, uh, to be quite honest with you. I mean, um, having the pleasure of playing with Rob as well, he's a fantastic guy. He was, you know, a superb defender as well. So, you know, even then, um, to be fair to him, Rob, Rob was a leader on the football field as well. But he wasn't a screaming baller at all as well. He, he'll organise uh, players and speak to players, but he was, he was never one for uh, screaming and balling at, at his, you know, at his players. I know that this book is going to focus on Villa and Wolves, and I think a lot of Villa and Wolves fans will buy it. But I hope Watford fans look at this because I really didn't know that you were part of that team because I went to the playoff final against Bolton. Mm-hmm. Nicky yeah. Wright's goal is my favourite. I'm afraid yes. that your scissor kick pales in comparison <laughs> with yeah. Nicky Wright's overhead yeah. kick. Did you know that Nicky could do something like that? Had he done stuff like that in training? Yeah, to be fair, uh, I was in digs with uh, Nick. We, oh, we both signed at the same time as well. And he's a great, great guy. Yeah, I was a more experienced pro than him. He was a young lad coming in and he's in digs at the same, same time, time as me. When I was at West Watford, when I when I'd gone down there as well, and he had he was a really big talent as well. You know, always uh, two decent feet, I can always strike a ball. But I'd never seen him quite honestly take a take away like that at all as well. So you know, it was a fantastic strike, wasn't it? Vividly, vividly yeah. remember, yes. and we still yeah. celebrate Nicky Wright yes. today. Yeah, absolutely. So so you should. Yeah, fan- yeah. I went down that day as well. Obviously, not uh, being involved. Uh, obviously, for being injured again as usual. But, um, you know, going down that day was a fantastic day. Wembley was an awesome, awesome day. And then you headed to Walsall and Forest Green, first as a player, then as a fitness coach. And for the last 20 years, you have used... It must be supremely ironic for someone who spent so many years crocked, as the horrible term is. Yeah. To, to his... professionally help both crocked and uncrocked players. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's quite, it's, it's quite ironic as well, because when I went to Wolves, I was injured there for... Uh, three, literally, virtually three of the four years I was there. So to go back to Wolves at a time as well as head of sports science at the time, you know, people, you know, the fans especially, you know, got so much stick for it as well. But for me, it, if you think about it, it makes it makes common sense. You being injured at that time, knowing about players, how how to handle the injuries and how to speak to them. So if you've got players who are you know coming through injuries or or whatever or uh, having fitness issues. Been there, seen it, got the T-shirt. So, you know, we had Matt Jarvis at Wolves at the time, and he was um, suffering a lot of injuries. Mm. You know, and it was quite good because he he was a winger like myself, uh, quick, you know, could accelerate for fun. You know, great cross to the ball, but kept getting injured all the time. So, at that particular time, I came off that same time, and a good old favourite. Having to talk to him about his off the field stuff and everything else, and how he was feeling, and he could talk to me about certain things as well because you know people were questioning him and the answers, and you know it was for him to know that I'd been through the same thing, and this is how I handled it, and this is how we're, how we're going to do. You know, he trusted what I was saying. So for me, I, I would have thought, and I think he's gone record saying a big part for him. You know, getting his career back on track, and you know, and seeing him go on and play for England. So nice. you know, it's a proud, proud moment for me. So you know, for all the people that like you just said there as well. You know, we've just said that. That's just it pales in insignificance to you know how I know of, of how uh, you know people throughout my career who've, who've, crossed, who've crossed my path. I hope he gets you a birthday card, Matt Jarvis. Yes. <laughs> I'll still speak to Java quite regularly as well, so I'll remind him. He better do. do. I have a feeling you're going to be on the phone all day. You're going to be at the gym and you'll come back from a two-hour session with someone and there'll be 408 messages saying, thinking of you, Tony, on this special day. Happy 40th. Because, yeah, 
we've had an hour together and this has been one of the most joyous of the 270 visitors to the football library. Unfortunately, you're not the first England international I've spoken uh-huh. to. Uh-huh. I have spoken to Ricky Hill. Oh, Ricky, yes, yes, great guy. You may well, know as well. And, and this book, The Daily Record, I will certainly be getting it to fill in the gaps in this very thorough conversation to read what Steve Bull has to say about you. I remember my Uncle Clive said of Troy Deeney, he's like Steve Bull, he's a battering ram, he's a League One player, he, and then he <laughs> gets captain of Watford. So oh, sure. did yeah. you did you work with Troy at all? No, I didn't. I've had no, no, no Troy, but I know he's a Birmingham lad and everything else, but um, I've never worked with a Troy or, or anything like that at all. But he's a really, really good, really, really good guy. Definitely a leader, uh, one that uh, players do respect and everything else, and has a commanding figure on the football field as well. I think you'd get on. I think I think oh. you and he would have lots to talk about, not yes, just because definitely. he can he can tell you about Chelmsley Wood and you. Can, where yes, in Birmingham yes, did you grow up? Good yeah, I was born in Newtown. Right. Newtown, similar similar areas. Yes, Newtown, Birmingham, which is literally about uh, a couple of miles away from Aston. Marvelous, and I've been to Birmingham a couple of times. Were you able to get to the Commonwealths? Yeah, I didn't manage, you know, I didn't manage to get uh, get any get, uh, stuff in. To be quite honest with you, as well, even it was on my doorstep, pretty good to clients as well. But you know, I was inundated with work at the time. Again, I know I should have made time, but didn't manage to get any games. But what I did do, because where we were, where I do live in Sutton Park, and where I work, uh, where Jimmy's literally a stone's throw away from Sutton Park, so we managed to see um, the triathlon, you know, the other. Yeah. The, the people on the bike coming through, so I saw a bit of that as it was as well. I've been able to see that, but actually to get to stay and watch athletics or any other events, I didn't see. This is this is where we'll finish because there's a lot of stuff about the legacy of London 2012, uh-huh. and I don't know if you got down to any of the Olympic or Paralympic events, uh-huh. but that legacy seems to have fallen to the wayside. Uh-huh. Are you one of the figures who could help the city of Birmingham, the second city, um, keep that legacy after the Commonwealths? Listen, if the, the council, whoever is in charge, wants to come and knock on my door and ask the question, I'm more than happy to try and help in that situation as well or put put to it, and that's a problem. Excellent, because I, I can't see you retiring, I think, for the next 40, 50 years, uh, seven days. I'll fitness. have to drop it, <laughs> yes, I'll have to be dropping before I do that. At the moment, I'm enjoying what I'm doing here as well, and a fair, fair few uh, years left in these legs. And uh, The Daily Record is the book. Tony, thank you so very much. Um, what's your day looking like today? Yes, I'm uh, back out again. I've got a, a couple of clients and a, a personal gym session myself. And I'll be finished um, for the rest of the day by about six o'clock. And last night you were on Villa TV. Is that a yes. season-long commitment? Are you doing every game this season? No, I don't do don't every game. You know, I think there's three of us myself, Brian Little and um, or another who does it as well. Uh, so there's three of us who actually do it as well. So, you know, I'll get to see, I'll, I'll see all the home games, because if I'm not involved in that, I'll do but watch the home games as well. But I see the majority of the away games as well. To quite a so something I really, really enjoy doing, you know, it, it, it is, it's, it's not that bad really, commentating on football for your beloved team. You know, it's, I wouldn't call it hard work at all. It's class. No, after all, certainly nicer work than five years ago when Christian Benteke was having his struggles and uh, we'll, we'll see a lad from Birmingham going to the World Cup, we think. So um, I hope Jack Grealish has a good tournament and oh, yeah, represents absolutely. the Villa. He might be absolutely. back at Villa yeah. soon. The, the amount of nonsense going on at Man City. <laughs> Different world now. But yeah, Tony, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Tony.